Well, what a joy it is for us to gather again. Yesterday was such a blessing to my own heart to spend that time with you. I think we catch fire from one another. It's contagious, and your love for the Lord, your love for preaching has an effect on me, and I trust I on you as iron sharpens iron, so one man another. And I pray that today and tomorrow we'll be able to sharpen one another. This is really a, a rare time for us, a parenthesis and time for us to come apart and be with uh, fellow preachers and to hold in common this commitment to what the Lord has called us to do. And I trust that, uh, that this will be a very formative time for you in your life. We have a great day. Uh, planned. I don't know how we could improve upon it in some ways. Uh, in one day, we will have live interaction with John MacArthur, Ligon Duncan, and R.C. Sproul, all three separately. So uh, we will be greatly blessed uh, by the time. With Dr. MacArthur, it will be a live stream uh, they have built quite a facility for him in the basement at Grace Community Church where he can do a live satellite feed around the world wherever he might need to have communication. And so there'll be a large screen in Fellowship Hall and we'll just have direct uh, interaction with him as though he is standing there. But with Ligon Duncan and R.C. Sproul, that will be uh, live. They will be with us. So, I, I eagerly await uh, this day and what all the Lord will have in store for us. And I certainly hope that you'll come to uh, St. Andrew's tonight and to be with uh, uh, the gathered group with St. Andrew's Church and uh, R.C. will do a, a question and answer with me and then, we'll, or I'll do it with him and then uh, I'll have a brief message after that. So, what a great day we have in store. But to start our day, uh, I want us to look at a passage of Scripture together. As you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, which is a signature text on biblical preaching, expository preaching. Um, I remember uh, last summer I was with Ian Murray over in Scotland and telling him of my love for this passage, and he just became so animated, and he said, oh, it was the doctor's favorite passage on, on biblical preaching, referring to Martin Lloyd-Jones. I just had opportunity to, to meet John Frame before our service began, and he said much the same, uh, that this is a favorite, if not the favorite passage of his on preaching and that subject. So this will be a very uh, choice uh, text for us to look at today. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I want to begin by reading the passage. Paul writes, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but 
in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Yet we do not speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which has not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. Years ago, the great expositor, Bible preacher, Donald Gray Barnhouse, a predecessor of James Montgomery Boyce at 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, had started a national radio ministry on CBS radio. And as it aired nationally, Dr. Boyce put forth this statement. If Satan took over Philadelphia, his most diabolical ploy would be this. All the bars would be closed. Prostitution and pornography would be banished. The streets would be clean. The neighborhoods would be filled with polite, law-abiding citizens who all smiled at each other. Swearing would be gone. Children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be filled to overflowing every Sunday, standing room only. He said that would be Satan's most diabolical danger if this would be added. In each of those packed churches, Jesus Christ and Him crucified would not be preached. Boy, Barnhouse went on to say there would be religion without Christ crucified. There would be morality without the cross of Christ. There would be cultural concern and political thinking. It would be Christianity without Christ. And what must be recovered in this day is the preaching of Christ and Him crucified, lest we be as Barnhouse feared, churches filled to overflowing with swelling numbers, concerned about the culture, concerned about how we interrelate to one another, concerned about having community, but there be no preaching of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. If that would be the case, there would be no gospel of Christ, and there would be no power unto salvation and no power of sanctification. To be sure, we must preach Christ in the central place in our exposition. We must preach Christ nailed to the cross, Christ bearing our sins in His body and becoming a curse for us, Christ becoming the atonement for our sins, Christ propitiating the righteous anger of God towards sinners, Christ reconciling sinful man to holy God, Christ redeeming us out of the slave market of sin and from bondage to 
Satan. We must preach Christ and Him crucified. This must be the very heartbeat of our pulpit. That is why I'm drawn to this particular passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, because it lays stress upon the priority and the preeminence and the centrality of straightforward, red-hot, no-holes-barred biblical preaching of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This passage points back to a time when Paul first came to Corinth on his second missionary journey. Corinth was a wealthy commercial hub, a very cosmopolitan city, a very prosperous uh, city. Uh, The city boasted an outdoor theater, and among those who took the stage were some of the most renowned actors and dramatists and orators of the known world. The Corinthians were accustomed to the best communicators, to the best rhetoricians who could hold their audiences spellbound as they stood before their audience. And so the question for Paul was, how could he even begin to make a dent in reaching a city like Corinth that had the best of communicators standing before them on a regular basis? How could he reach this sophisticated city? How would Paul resort in his ministry? What would be his strategy to reach these cultured elite of the day? Would he de-emphasize preaching? Would he alter the, the means and the method? Would he try a sneak-up approach on the Corinthians? Uh, would he adopt their strategy? And rather than preach, would he try to become a, a communicator? Would he try to become a, an orator? Would he try to build bridges to them by adopting a form of communication that they so highly prized? Uh, How would he reach this highly philosophical people who had been influenced by Greek thinking? We're, We're not left to wonder. For Paul tells us in this very passage that as he came to Corinth... He came not acting, and he came not communicating. He came preaching, and as he came preaching, he came preaching the person and work and terms of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he did so in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what you and I need for our ministries, quite frankly. And we are surrounded by so many influences from conferences and Christian books and others who are held up before us that we need to uh, adapt the method by which we stand before people and cater to their ear. We need this passage, this text, to be very strongly written upon our hearts, that we carry forward the preaching of the Word of God 
just as Paul did in Corinth. Now, as we look at this passage, let me give you just a brief overview of how I want to lay out our exposition of this passage. I want you to note three things with me. I want you to note first the preeminence of Christ. Uh, That's in verses 1 and 2. That stands out loud and clear, the preeminence of Christ. And then second, the power of the Spirit. That is in verses 3 through 5. And it's the marrying of these two that we so need in our pulpit ministry, preaching the preeminence of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, we will look at the predestination of the Father in verses 6 through 9 and what confidence we have that as we carry out our ministry, we are carrying forward that which has been foreordained by God Himself. Not only the message has been foreordained, but those who will respond to the message have been foreordained also. So let's begin now looking at verse 1. I want you to note first the preeminence of Christ. And Paul will begin by telling us that the central message in all preaching must be focused upon the one who is the heart of the gospel, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul begins in verse 1, And when I came to you, brethren... And this points back to Paul's earlier visit to Corinth that I've already mentioned on his second missionary journey. So he's looking back to that time when he first came to them, and he will remind them how it was that he came to them and how he brought the message of Christ. And Paul is such a master teacher He speaks to us now with negative denial and positive assertion. He will begin by telling us how I did not come, and then he will tell us how he did come. Great teachers speak with negative denial, positive assertion. There's no wiggle room. Nothing can slip through the cracks. And that is precisely what Paul is doing in verse 1. So he begins with this negative denial, I did not. I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Paul says, I did not come with two things. I did not come with superiority of speech, that's number one, and I did not come with wisdom, that is number two. Now, before we begin to to, uh, analyze what that means, it needs to be said that if there was ever a time to have tried superiority of speech and wisdom, it was here when Paul came to Corinth. If anyone had ever tried to connect with the, the culture and the people in, a, in an immediate, successful way, it would have been for Paul when he came to Corinth to use superiority of speech and wisdom. The Corinthians loved superiority of speech. They flocked to wisdom. They applauded these methods and and this message. And if Paul had arrived in Corinth, and if he had gone door to door and done a survey and asked the Corinthians, what would you like in a church? Sound familiar? If he had gone door to door and done a survey and asked them, what message do you want? 
and what style of delivery would you like? And if you give us what we want, we'll come. The Corinthians would have stood up and said, we'll come to church if you'll give us superiority of speech and if you'll give us wisdom. I asked John MacArthur one time, I said, what about these guys that go door to door and survey a a neighborhood and find out what people want uh, to determine what the profile will be for their church? MacArthur says, here's what you do. You go door to door, you do the survey, and you give people the exact opposite of what they want because the carnal mind is hostile to the things of God. Paul would have packed the building out If he had announced, I'm in town and I'm going to give you in spades superiority of speech and of wisdom. But Paul understands that those two streams, biblical Christianity and Greek worldly philosophy are antithetical. And Paul also understood that the means or the end does not justify the means, and that there is a God-approved method by which His message is to be brought. Now, let's just think about superiority of speech, and let's think about wisdom as we see it here in verse 1. Superiority of speech deals with the delivery. Wisdom deals with the doctrine. Superiority of speech deals with a worldly delivery. Wisdom, in this verse, deals with, a, with worldly doctrine. Superiority of speech deals with style. Wisdom with its substance. Superiority of speech deals with the method. Wisdom with its message. Superiority of speech with how one speaks, wisdom with what one says. So you see the distinction between the two? And when Paul says that he came not with superiority of speech, he could not be any more emphatic. He said he did not come as the Greek orator who spoke to butter up his listeners. He did not come resting upon rhetorical techniques to manipulate people. He did not come relying upon oratorical devices to win over his listeners. He was not looking to trained vocal inflections. He was not leaning on debate techniques, nor commanding gestures, or flowery eloquence, nor play-acting skills learned from the Greek schools of rhetoric. He was not using the art of persuasion in manipulation through discourse. Paul did not buy in to that tired mantra that the message stays the same, but the method is free to be adapted, that the method is free to be whatever. The method does matter. And Paul says so here. It matters to God not only what we say, but how we say it. We cannot have a transcendent message and a trivial delivery. And so Paul now addresses the message itself as well. 
not only did he not come with a worldly delivery, he wasn't a stand-up comic. He he wasn't uh, uh, an actor, but also the message. He says he did not come with wisdom. Now, this wisdom does not refer to God's wisdom. Of course, it does not. This wisdom is the wisdom of the world. Now, philosophy attempts to answer certain basic life questions as it would frame a world view. Where did I come from? Who am I? Where am I going? What is life all about? Is there a God? Why am I here? What is truth? What is meaning? How can I find happiness? How should I live? What is death? Where do I go after death? Who is God? How may I know God? These are the answers, these are the questions of the philosopher. And the world attempts to answer these questions in a peculiar way. It offers man's solutions to man's own problems. This wisdom of the world, which was being brought down from Athens, which was the hub of Greek philosophical thinking, uh, it came with man-centered perspective on life, that all things are from man and through man and, and to man, to man be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It refers to a man-centered worldview when he says, I did not come with wisdom. I did not come with a man-centered worldview. Uh, It refers to man's diagnosis of his own problems and man's prescription of his own problems to solve them. Paul referred to this wisdom earlier in verse 19, if you'll look in chapter 1 and verse 19. Paul quotes in verse 19, he quotes Isaiah 29, verse 14, and Paul says, For it is written, and God is now the speaker, I, this is God speaking first person, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. God is on a collision course with the wisdom of this world. God will utterly destroy the wisdom of this world. I will destroy the wisdom of the world. And the cleverness of the clever, I will set aside. When he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the world, that refers to worldly, a worldly message. And the cleverness of the clever refers to a worldly method or a worldly delivery. God says, I will destroy both of it. In verse 20, Paul begins to taunt and mock the wise men of this world who cling to worldly thinking. And he says, where is the wise man? Let him step forward. Let him give his answers to God. Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Let him step forward and match his intelligence with the infinite genius of God and and God's message and God's plan. 
Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, what a contrast. From verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And now verse 21, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. It is impossible for the wisdom of this world to lead to the knowledge of God. The wisdom of this world leads to hell and eternal damnation. And the flames of the lake of fire. Verse 22, for indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. The Greeks are ever searching and never finding as they try to pull from their own minds the way to God and the knowledge of God. Paul also warned against human wisdom in Colossians 2 and verse 8 when he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy. There is a Christian philosophy that's good, and there is a bankrupt worldly philosophy that damns. The word philosophy means love of wisdom, phileo, sophia, the love of wisdom. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and, and empty deception. That's what philosophy is. According to the tradition of men, it's just men drawing from their own empty cisterns. According to the elementary principles of the world, it claims to be profound, it claims to be uh, lofty, and Paul says it's nothing more than just the ABC building blocks, the elementary principles of the world. So in verse 1, Paul says, I did not come to you in this way, and I would say to you men here today, I challenge you by this text, do not succumb to a worldly message and do not succumb to a worldly method. We must be men who preach Christ and Him crucified and, and the power of the gospel needs no supplements. It needs no human additions. It needs no props to hold it up. It needs no annotations from, from man's thinking. And as we bring the message of Christ and Him crucified, we are to not rely upon the superiority of speech and the manipulations of the craft of the orator to try to sway the crowd. As I told you yesterday, there are too many preachers who are trying to fill the building and they never fill the pulpit. Now, I want you to see the positive assertion. That was the negative. I don't think there could be any doubt what Paul just told us. The negative assertion, verse 1, now the positive, or the negative denial, verse 1, now the positive assertion, 
verse 2. He now pivots and he now will tell us how I did come to you. And as Paul came to the Corinthians, this is how you and I must come to our flocks and to our congregations. We, we are, these are the guardrails. We, we are hemmed in by this apostolic pattern. He says in verse 2, For I determined... This word determined is a very strong word. It means to be resolved. We've read of Jonathan Edwards' 70 resolutions that he wrote when he was 18 and 19 years old. Resolved, resolved, resolved. Well, Paul was resolved long before Jonathan Edwards was resolved. He, I, I was determined to know nothing, or excuse me, yes, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. As I look at this, I want you to see that he could not have stated this any more emphatically. The word nothing just should leap off the page. I determined to know nothing of human wisdom, nothing of worldly mantra, nothing of humanistic philosophy, nothing of secular humanism, nothing of human psychology, nothing of human sociology, nothing of comparative religion, nothing of positive thinking, nothing of motivational pep talks. For I determined to know nothing among you. And Paul was there for 18 months. This wasn't just a, a one weekend stay. He was there for a year and a half. Except, and the word except underscores the exclusivity of what follows. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He preached solas Christos. Christ alone. This was the core essence of, of His preaching. It was the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, certainly someone would say, well, I thought Paul preached the full counsel of God. Did he not say to the elders in Ephesus for three years, uh, I did not withhold from you the full counsel of God? And the answer to that would be yes. Did, did Paul not address every major area of, of systematic theology? And the answer to that is, of course, yes. But what Paul is saying here is that the sum and the substance of his message was nothing more and nothing less than Christ and Him crucified. That all of the lines of His theology intersected at the pinnacle of the person and work of Jesus Christ. All of His anthropology, all of His harmatology, all of His soteriology, all of His pneumatology, all of His theology proper, all of the ecclesiology and eschatology, it was all to, to uphold the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was one-track-minded in his preaching. The apex and the pinnacle of his preaching, he was continually coming back to his dominant theme. As he preached... It was just to show the need for Christ. 
as he preached ecclesiology, it was to show the church is the body of Christ and he is the head of Christ. As he preached eschatology, it was that Christ is coming back. As he preached anthropology, that, that we have been created by Christ and, and for Christ. As he preached bibliology, it was that it, the Bible is the word of Christ. As he preached theology proper, it was that Christ is the Son of God, the image of the invisible God. As he preached pneumatology, it was that he is the sender of the Holy Spirit. His entire theology revolved around Christ and him crucified. Please note, not just Christ, but verse 23 of chapter 1, as well as chapter 2 and verse 2, it's Christ and Him crucified. Not just Jesus' moral example. Not just Jesus' master teacher. And as some today would say, Jesus' life guru but a Savior of sinners who died upon the cross, bearing the sins of His people, taken down, buried, raised on the third day, ascended to heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father. There is salvation in no other name, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. It's this Jesus that Paul preached. He preached the primacy of the cross, the centrality of the cross, the sufficiency of the cross, the exclusivity of the cross, the finality of the cross, the glory of the cross. This was Paul's preaching. He has already said this. Look back at chapter 1 and verse 18. This centrality and primacy and preeminence of, of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the very heart and the very heartbeat of his message. It says in verse 18, for the word of the cross. When he says the word of the cross, he is talking about Jesus Christ being lifted up upon Calvary's cross, him who knew no sin. God made to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. For the word of the cross is foolishness. You know that comes from a Greek word, moros, from which we derive the English word moronic. Of no sense. Stupid. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Does that prevent us from preaching the cross? No, we understand that it is only this foolish message, foolish to the eyes of the unconverted. It is their only hope and how dependent we are upon God the Holy Spirit to open their eyes, to open their ears, to open their hearts, to draw them to Christ and to sovereignly, monergistically regenerate them. But we keep preaching the word of the cross that is foolishness to them, regardless of what our approval ratings are. 
For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You know what I fear? I fear that in too many pulpits, our preaching is no longer foolishness to the unconverted. And we have done everything we possibly can to butter them up. And in so doing, we have done nothing more than beguile them. My fear is that too many preachers want to be accepted by the world, and so they, have, they withhold the offense of the cross. Paul says, I came preaching Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In verse 23, he says, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a, a stumbling block. Of course, it's a stumbling block to Jews. We hold before them and say that God became a man. This is your Messiah, crucified in the prime of life, struck down, his own band of followers forsaken him. Only his mother was left there at the cross, and, and John didn't even have a place in which he was to be buried. And you are saying to me that my eternal destiny rests upon me committing all that I am to all that he is? Yes, that is exactly the message that we bring. And it is a stumbling block to Jews. And it is foolishness to Gentiles. It makes no sense. It does not compute. They cannot comprehend. And the reason is what Paul will say in chapter 2 and verse 14. But a natural man, that is a man who's only been born once... A natural man does not accept, he cannot process and receive the things of the Spirit of God. And the things of the Spirit of God refer to Christ and Him crucified. For they are, here's our word again, foolishness. They are foolishness to Him. It's moronic. It's bane. It's insane. It doesn't add up. And he cannot understand them. There is a moral inability. You know the difference between may not and cannot. He does not have the spiritual apparatus by which to see and understand and receive the things of the Lord. What a challenge we have as preachers. <laughs> we are, in essence, to put it crassly selling a product that people cannot see, cannot hear, and when what they do see and hear they think is foolishness. And we are simply to preach and to proclaim and to herald the message of a bloody, crucified Savior who has been raised from the dead. So... Paul says, we preach Christ and Him crucified. 
I want to bring this to a close here, and we'll just pick this up tomorrow morning. I feel like I'm at my church now. (laughs) But as we bring this to a close, I want to ask you, as people would file out of your church, if we were to stand in the lobby, stand at the door as they leave, and to ask them, tell me about your pastor. Tell me about your preacher. What is the dominant note of his preaching? Would they say, he is a great preacher of a great Christ? I'm sure the mere fact that you're here at a conference like this says so much about your peaked interest in preaching Christ and Him crucified. What a challenge this text is to me. What a challenge this should be to each one of us, that we should be known as those who carry the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ and that the clear clarion note of our preaching whether we are preaching bibliology all the way to eschatology or any other theological discipline and arena in between, whatever our text, wherever we stand before an open Bible, that we would be putting the trumpet to our lips and sounding forth the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said the best sermons, the best sermons are the sermons which are fullest of Christ. A sermon without Christ, he says, is an awful thing, is a horrible thing. It is an empty well. A sermon without Christ is a cloud without rain. It is a tree twice dead, plucked up by the roots, A sermon without Christ is an abominable thing to give men stones for bread and scorpions for eggs. We might as well talk of a loaf of bread without flour as a sermon without Christ. Spurgeon said, all roads in England lead to London. And all texts lead to Christ. He said, I take my text and make a beeline to the cross. The most prominent, powerful agency in the church is the preaching of Christ. This is the trumpet of heaven and the battering ram of hell. Give us more powerful, Christ-centered, Christ-exalting, Christ-proclaiming preachers. And I believe the smile of heaven will be upon it and the gates of hell will shake. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for preserving this text in the canon of your scripture that we now, 2,000 years later, men who are desiring to follow in the apostolic model, 
might have this glimpse into the preaching of the Apostle Paul. Lord, prune from our ministries that which does not square with this. Water, cultivate, nourish in our ministries and in our preaching all that you are doing in us so that our preaching might exemplify what Paul has stated here. We confess we are often tempted as we see the success around us in other places of adopting worldly methods in order to carry out your work. Remind us that both the message and the method matter to you. That both the doctrine and the delivery matter to you. So settle that in our hearts and cause us, therefore, to be all the more dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God whom we will look at tomorrow morning. I pray for these men. I pray for myself that you would strengthen our resolve, that we might say with Paul, for I am determined. We too easily are tossed back and forth like the wave of the sea. Cause us to be anchor points. Cause us to be sturdy pillars. Cause us to be determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So, Father... We commit ourselves to you. We place our lives yet again before your throne of grace. We present ourselves as a living and holy sacrifice. And we ask that you would renew our minds and use our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.